is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture and beyond. So, Anyway, let's get to it. We got Pastor Sam Rodriguez with us today, president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference, number one New York Times bestselling author, one of the most important faith leaders in the country today. And we're going to talk about how to build a society. So let me set things up. We're at the end of the book of Exodus, the greatest story of liberation and nation building in world history. And as you might expect from a tale about how a nation came into being, it ends with the Israelites concluding their first great project together. They build a temple. And the way the Bible describes the end of that process is by saying, and Moses finished the work. That seems simple enough. But here's where it helps to read the Bible in the original Hebrew. The words the Bible uses here are really surprising. It says, Vayechal Moshe et ha and Moses finished the work. The only other place in the entire Bible where that phrase, Vayechal HaMilacha, finishing the work, appears, is the very beginning of Genesis. When God finishes creating the world, the Bible says, Vayechal Elokim Bayom Milachto Asher Asa. And on the seventh day, God finished his work, which he had made. So the Bible describes the Israelites finishing building the temple the same way it describes God finishing creating the world. Why is that? The answer is that actually the book of Genesis and Exodus are two halves of one long story, and they're mirror images of each other. Genesis begins with an act of creation, the world, then tells of a covenant with God, Abraham's covenant, and ends with the Hebrews in Egypt. Exodus begins with the Hebrews in Egypt, then tells of a covenant with God, the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, and it ends with an act of creation, this time by man, the building of the temple. In other words, the message is that when it comes to creating the world, God does that entirely for us. It's a free lunch. But when it comes to creating a society, God demands that we partner with him in building it. We need to put in the work. And if we do, then we're partaking of the work of creation itself. In fact, one of my favorite phrases from ancient Jewish literature is the idea that it's possible for us to become a partner with God in the creation of the world. And in America, it seems to me, we have a unique opportunity to do that work. This is the only country in history since ancient Israel itself, since the ancient Hebrew Republic, that was founded on the basis of an aspiration, not on where we've been, on our past or on the basis of some ancient history, but on the basis of where we're going and the God-given values of liberty and human dignity that will get us there. So what will it take for us to partner with God in building a virtuous society? And to answer that question, I invited on the best person for the job, the president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference, the largest Hispanic evangelical coalition in the world, and number one New York Times bestselling author, the brilliant, the amazing Pastor Sam Rodriguez. Pastor Sam, thank you so much for being here. Rabbi, my friend, honored to be with you. Thank you for having me. Oh, this is going to be amazing. So how do I know Pastor Sam? So I'm about to go on CBN, Christian Broadcast Network, <laughs> and I'm waiting there and I'm hearing the guests coming on before me. And all of a sudden, right before me is Pastor Sam Rodriguez. And I just hear this person spitting straight fire on the TV. And I thought to myself, I just need to be friends with this person. So I just figured out who do I know who knows Pastor Sam? One thing led to another. We got in touch. 
and here you are. And I'm just, I'm so thrilled that you're here. I'm honored to be with you. We are of kindred spirit indeed. I love it. So as I'm learning more about you, so one of the things that really caught my eye and my ear and my soul is that in the mission and the vision for the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference, it talks about reconciling Billy Graham and Martin Luther King Jr. And I just found that idea so fascinating. And I'd love for you to unpack. What does that mean? How does that translate into a vision for society? That's the heart of our ethos. It's the heart of reconciling righteousness and justice. It's the heart of reconciling Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Truth and love lead the way as attendants. And I saw, in growing up in the 20th century, I saw this struggle, this sort of dichotomy between righteousness and justice. People of faith committed to righteousness, people of faith committed to justice, but never shall the two meet. And in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, I just saw that inseparable reality where righteousness and justice would always walk together. Billy Graham and Dr. King. What if we would reconcile righteousness and justice, truth and love, sanctification and service, conviction with compassion, conduct with character? What if we reconcile the new, you know, Jerusalem with Bethlehem, Pennsylvania? And that was my commitment. Let's launch a movement. Matter of fact, to be very honest, as a Christian, I saw the white church committed to righteousness, white evangelicals, African-American Christians committed to justice. So Billy Graham was on one end, Dr. King was on the other. And this Latino Hispanic brother said, why can't we marry Billy Graham with Dr. King? That served as the foundational framework for the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference. Wow. And so what's your vision then of what you want America or Americans to see, hear, and understand when they think of American evangelicalism? What are they hearing now? And what's your vision for what they should be seeing and hearing? Yeah, what they're hearing now is slated, it's skewed, it comes via the lenses of major media outlets that have, let's just say, a myopic, I would even argue, discriminatory, bigoted depiction of the evangelical community. And it's unfortunate because the evangelical community is a wonderful community, the charitable contribution, not just to America, but across the world, from nets for malaria and ending sex trafficking, treating AIDS in Africa and in South Asia. The evangelical community is very righteous. Again, it's not perfect, like no community is, but it's, it's a righteous community. It's a beautiful, thriving community. I want everyone to understand the evangelical community is committed to this idea of what makes America exceptional. God over man, man over government. God over man, man over government. That's the pecking order, my friend. Someone asked me last week, so in light of everything that's happening with the cancel culture and revisiting America and even Christian nationalism, which is 0.0001% of all Christians, should you stop talking about American exceptionalism? Absolutely not. We are exceptional. Are you telling me none of the kids in the class deserve an A plus because the professor doesn't want to grant an A plus? The fact that America is exceptional. We're not perfect but we were batting 97, 98% average when the others were 83, 79, some of them were failing. And what makes this exceptional? The founding premise, you alluded to it perfectly, Ari. The, the fact that it's a nation like the Republic of Israel of old, founded with an aspiration. This nation was founded with this amazing idea, God over man, man over government. What if we build a society on a Judeo-Christian value system that elevates that truth? And the moment we replace that, which is happening now, the moment government continues to grow. I spoke at a conference last night, reminded the audience, this growth of Uncle Sam, I want to remind you, he's just an uncle. 
He's an uncle. Sometimes our uncles get drunk. Sometimes they're loud and vociferous, very animated. Sometimes they're cool and they behave well. My point to you is he's our uncle, but he will never be our heavenly father. Wow. So, you know, it's so funny. The way I think about it is this, you know, we're, we're often used to considering America as the force that protects religion, right? America protects religion. And we often forget that, as you said, it's religion that protects America as well. And really not just as well, but first and foremost. And, you know, this to me is so fascinating because hearing you talk about your perspective, you know, like the Latino brother who kind of comes into this with a different perspective, it seems so familiar to me as a Jewish American in the sense that I feel like there's this this similar experience that our communities have where, I mean, I grew up in a very deeply, deeply traditional Jewish community. I often tell people, like, I'm very proud to be a, like a religious fanatic, you know, um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, we're both like deeply invested in the culture that shaped us before we reached these shores. Our faith is extremely important to us. And yet we've really bought into the promise of the American experiment. So in a weird way, you know, I talk about it this way, you know, my amazing teacher and father as a Civil War historian. And growing up, you know, we had pictures of Abraham Lincoln around the house and Frederick Douglass and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, you'd think that those things I would look at as somebody else's story, right? right? Because when the Civil War was going on and when abolitionism, my ancestors, who are deeply important to me, were doing their thing in like Galicia on the border of Poland and Ukraine. And yet in a very real way, I identify with that American past as my story. And that's something unique that America allows us to do. Right. So that's kind of my sense of the Jewish experience in this country. What is it about the the experience that you and your community have had that kind of allows you an interesting and unique perspective on the American story? Before I answer that question, I just need to emphasize something that you brilliantly stated about religious liberty. Religious liberty is the firewall against secular totalitarianism. That is the quintessential firewall against secular totalitarianism or any totalitarianism. It is religious liberty. And now as it pertains to your, to your query, this immigrant story, I mean, Latino story, of course, collectively, arguably from Agustin, Florida to California, Latinos were here prior to the pilgrims and the Puritans. So the Hispanic story, the Hispanic diaspora, Spanish conquest of, of Mexico and Latin America, coming up here north, Texas, Florida, California, and so forth, over 500 years of history here in America. But in the current reality, the migrant story, the Latino migrant story, the Hispanic migrant story, to me, it, it speaks accolades to a community that is so driven by faith. According to Pew Research, it has to add strong faith ethos, just like our Jewish brothers and sisters. It's part of our cultural DNA. So it's not just an extrinsic reality that we embrace on occasion. It's, it's part of our cultural uh, mitochondria. And because we're so firmly committed to faith, there is faith, just family, familia. So with faith, we're committed to familia, family. And then because of faith and family and what we've experienced in the past 30, 40 years in Latin America, when we saw back in the 60s, actually, 70s, 80s, late 50s, emerging 80s in El Salvador and Guatemala, we saw in the 60s and all the way till now in Cuba, Bolivia and so forth, we saw what socialism, communism does. And currently Venezuela, because we see what happens when we lose our rights and freedoms, these immigrants now arrive in America with a heart for faith, family and freedom. So if there's ever a faith, family, freedom coalition, it's the Latino immigrant, without a doubt. And they come to America and, and they say, look, 
the American dream. It's actually my dream. It's part of my DNA. So it isn't a stretch. This idea of Hispanics should come to America and assimilate. What does that mean other than the language? Because they really resonate the values of Washington, of John Adams, of Thomas Jefferson, even John Locke's life, liberty and property. It's Alexander Hamilton. You name it. It's John Quincy Adams. It's Abraham Lincoln. These true values are embedded in the Hispanic migrant reality. I, I love that. And, you know, it, it makes me think of something else I came across as I was learning more about you and what you stand for and what you've written, which is that, you know, at the National Hispanic Coalition, you've written about the idea of justice and how the idea of justice that you stand for is different than what you might think of and then what a typical American, let's say, might think of when they think of justice. And the way that I kind of keep it in my head is there's almost like an ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew understanding of justice. And it's the same word, but two very different concepts. Right. Right. So the, the Greek concept of justice is justice as system, right? Where there's a natural law and it applies exactly the same at all times, at all places, and everybody has the exact same set of rules. And so, and that's very important because it kind of allows you to craft universal systems, but it's also very static. For Hebrew civilization, for the Bible, justice is not system, it's story. It's you have to stand for freedom because you were slaves in Egypt. You have to proclaim freedom throughout the land because you know what it means to be a slave, right? It's about a relationship between a society or a people or an individual and God. And America has a mixture of these, right? Locke and Moses, you could say, right? So first of all, does that resonate with you? And if so, are we in danger of losing that mixture? And what would that mean? Beautiful. Justice is both narrative driven. And then there is a system by which we deliver that justice. So it's systematic and it's personal. And that meta-narrative sort of reference that you alluded to. I am concerned about justice now. Many of our recent realities, scenes that we have seen depicted on our platforms, on our information network and networks, I don't know if they truly reflect justice. Not the justice that you and I just referenced. The term justice in Samuel Rodriguez's lexicon is righteousness applied. So if righteousness is vertical, it comes from God, this is justice. It's a horizontal application of the righteousness you receive. So if you receive righteousness, when you do righteousness, you do justice. And you're basically taking the agenda that is divine and you're applying it on a personal level, on a societal level, on a cultural, political level, you're doing righteousness. Right now, some of the manifestations do not necessarily affirm that definition. And it concerns me. Even the term justice has been hijacked by those that are not doing justice. They are engaging in self-serving activities that are counterintuitive to doing justice. Anything that is destructive, anything that requires other groups to submit and, and sacrifice truth on the altar of political or cultural expediency, Anything that muzzles or that silences free expression, that's not justice. That's totalitarian, authoritarian engagements and activities all under the guise of justice. Justice emancipates. Justice never holds captive. Wow. Wow. And I actually want to explore that, right? Because what's so fascinating to me is that you are coming to this conversation with such an important perspective and especially representing such a huge and critical constituency in the American experiment at this moment. 
So there are kind of two elements of sort of the American Hispanic experience and trajectory that I want to ask you about. The first is actually one that you alluded to earlier when you talked about, you know, the Hebrew Republic, both old and new. Yes. And one of the things that I've become obsessed with in recent months and years is just the startling friendship and kinship (laughs) for the state of Israel that I've seen coming out of Latin America. And frankly, it's not something I was like taught to expect growing up. And yet it has blown me away. What can you tell me about that? Am I wrong in 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 perceiving that? No, no, no. You're not only correct in perceiving that, that commitment to Israel and to the Jewish people is emerging as a, speaking metaphorically, as an injected chromosome in that DNA that I referenced previously. Multiple generations. Wow. My children, I have three kids. They've been to Israel, the exception of my youngest, who is still upset with dad on why the two oldest were able to go to Israel. And Good for her. Let's go. Yeah, she is. (laughs) And it's beyond just the the religious, the pilgrimage and so forth. That's beautiful. It's just this commitment of this love for Israel. It stems out of the Bible. You can't deny the blessing of God upon Israel. You can't deny. I'm a Lehigh University grad. I'm a math and science guy. I may preach like Kirk, but I think like Spock. I'm very linear sequential in my systems. And when I'm asked about agnosticism and atheism, how do you really push people beyond the arguments of just the beauty of the Big Bang and gravity and so forth and the fact that we're cognizant of each other? I go to Israel. If you're an atheist or agnostic, look at Israel. Isn't that like enough proof of a God? I mean, are you kidding me? So in the Latino world, it's more than enamored. There's a commitment. In spite of the BDS movement attempting to infiltrate media in Latin American nations with that propaganda, in spite of other efforts by the enemies of Israel attempting to get Latinos to self to identify with certain segments in the Middle East as we are mutually suffering, you are immigrants and in America, Latinos, that sort of attempt has failed miserably. Latinos are becoming one of the most faithfully committed communities as it pertains to loving Israel, advocating for Israel and the Jewish people and making sure that anti-Semitism prayerfully will die in our generation. Wow. So I think it's a beautiful relationship. I love it. I love it. I referenced to the current melees and silencing. I referenced that a few weeks ago in an article. I talked about the uh, Spanish Inquisition and what took place with with the Jews. And I talked about we're going through an ideological inquisition now in America. This marriage between La Comunidad Hispana, the beautiful Hispanic community, and the Jewish people, uh, I I don't think we're flirting. I I think we're getting married. (laughs) You know, I'll tell you, it's so funny you say that because... As you're speaking now, and as I've thought about this, it occurs to me, especially with my kind of historian's background, in the past, Spanish and Portuguese, in the Jewish past, like the medieval past, listen, Jews have very long memories. We're like kind of the elephants of the nations, right? (laughs) Very long memories. So, you know, when Jews say something happened recently, it's like 300 years ago is recent, right? (laughs) Right. So if you think about kind of like the last like 1,000, 1,500 years of Jewish history, Spanish and Portuguese were the language of fear, of expulsion, of being pursued, of being oppressed. And to think that we're living in an era now where increasingly and rapidly Spanish and Portuguese are actually becoming the language of friendship, of fellowship, of shared purpose is something so remarkable and so moving. I honestly almost cry anytime I think about it. 
I love it. It's called flipping the script. Yeah, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. And, and I, I absolutely love it. And so that brings me to my last question, which is, you know, you have this great turn of phrase I, and you wrote a book about this, right? That for the, the community that you come from, it's not about the politics of, <laughs> of the donkey or of the elephant. The it's elephant. about the politics of the lamb. I'm so taken by that in the sense that it really puts such a heavy and clear and clear headed emphasis on the idea that we as religious communities cannot and should not be talked down to. We have values and traditions of values that long predate any of the parties that are courting us or taking us for granted. And we should really maintain our convictions in the face of everybody who's kind of calling us and courting us. And so with that in mind, what should these, in a historical sense, recent political creations, the kind of the two parties in America, what should they know about your community? What should they know about the Hispanic community at large and the coming generations if they want to be friends? Our Judeo-Christian value system, as we well know, historically speaking, it's Judaism that gave us model theism, the clarity of a moral code that even superseded the Code of Amurabi. The clarity, the authenticity of that code, the application of that code, of course, the monotheistic element cannot be denied. Here we are. And together, this is the foundational framework for society, for modern society. We can't, as you and I both know, we can't use the term Western civilization anymore. That's politically incorrect. So it's the foundational framework for all of civilization, without a doubt, for modern society. It's under assault. That's not hype. It's not like conspiracy theory. It, it literally is under assault. That faith ethos, you're right. We can't be talked down to because our values are eternal. They are eternal. They come from an eternal God. They are eternal. And they will, again, survive the test of time. The Latino community is the quintessential independent voting electorate. We're not married to the donkey or the elephant. We're married exclusively to the lamb's agenda. What does that mean? That's not like, you know, wishful thinking. The last election, the Latinos came out in Florida, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California, and said, yeah, we're leaving the reservation. We're going rogue. And it's not just for a day. We don't like this. We don't like this ideological, myopic, silo worldview. We have our ethos. It's faith-driven. It's values-driven. And both parties have fallen short. One party right now, in my argument, is falling a lot shorter than the other. Let me be explicit. The donkey's having more difficulty with the Latino community than the elephant is right now. It used to be the way around, but now it's flipped. Because the Latinos, we are very staunchly pro-life. We believe in the image of God from the womb to the tomb. So we're womb to tomb pro-life. Uh, we're committed to religious liberty. We're committed to biblical justice. And we're committed to free enterprise. So we're committed to the marketplace of ideas. We're committed to freedoms across the board, mind, body, soul, spirit, economic freedom. All of that together defines the Latino community. So again, because right now there's angst with both parties, primarily with one, but there's, there's angst with both. Latinos have said, we're going rogue. We'd rather be an independent voting constituency that will prompt both parties to somehow meet us in the middle. So I do think that we are going to serve as the reconciliatory prescription, even politically here in America in the 21st century. So I think we should close on this note. You know, I'm a, you know, <laughs> my wife uh, always makes fun of me for this. I'm like an eternal optimist. I'm not sort of like wild eyed. You know, if there's not a basis for optimism, I won't do it. But I kind of tend to gravitate towards those kinds of people. So what's the optimist's case for the American future? If you're looking to the American future, what's the case for, for excitement, for hope? The American future, the state, the millennial and Z generations, and again, optimism here, 
millennials, Generation Z, Latino, the migrant reality, an affirmation. How about this? A resurgence of the values that you and I hold near and dear, that Judeo-Christian value system. We'll see that. It'll be a revitalization, a brand new infusion of these values that made America a wonderful, exceptional nation. Not a perfect nation, but it was just so brilliant in its outline that it enabled it to overcome the issues and the sins and cut down the Asherah poles. How about that? Now you're talking my language. <laughs> and he, absolutely. And in culture and tear down Baal's altars. That we will continue to do. That's optimism. So let not your heart be troubled. It's going to require, Rabbi Ari, my friend, you and I to stand up. Meaning, remember when Gideon in Judges chapter six came out of the wine press that he converted into a threshing floor, which is a sermon in its own right? Oh, man, you're, you're in the right place for a sermon, man. This is good Am faith right? effort. <laughs> he was threshing wheat in a wine press. Who does that? And yet he was. And the angel of the Lord says, you're a mighty hero. How about that? He never let go of his harvest, right? Pretty amazing. And he comes out, he builds an altar, he calls it Shalom. But then he tore his father's, Joash's altar constructed for Baal, he tore that down. You ask the question, what do you see in the future? You and I need to build something that's amazing. We need to build peace, not just talk about it. We need to build something that will last beyond you and I, but we must be willing to tear down whatever's false. We need to tear down. We just can't be happy in building. We're going to have to tear down the false and confront the false, and then cut down the Asherah pole and let that wood fuel our destiny and future. I'm speaking metaphorically as a preacher. What am I saying? If you and I do the right thing, our children will walk upon the ruins of what we bring down in our generation. That's optimism, but it's going to require our generation to rise up. Don't ask me about the pessimism, because this is going nuts right now. This attack on science, on faith. By that, we're seeing the marriage of faith and science. Both science and faith are going like, hold on a second. <laughs> and I'm a faith and science guy. I don't think they're juxtaposed. I think they're the manifestation of the same sort of meta thread. So, but right now we're going, oh, wait a second. What? Are you kidding me? So again, things are going to get brighter and better only if we're willing to do what Gideon did, build something, but be willing to confront the lies simultaneously. Let's do both. Let's not just do either or. Amen. Pastor Sam, you are amazing. Thank you so much for joining Good Faith Effort. What do you have? You've you published books. You have a new book coming out. What do you got for the, what do you got for the listeners? Honored to be with you, my friend. We have a kindred spirit indeed. I, I am the Latino president of your fan club. It's a book called From Survive to Thrive. Pick it up on Amazon. It speaks about that King David story. Amazing. So it's David's entire story. I wrote it coming in the midst of COVID pandemic. It's all there. It's all embedded there. It'll bless you indeed. And there's a movie coming out. I'm a movie producer, as you well know, produced a movie called Breakthrough. And now we're producing one with Eva Longoria Amazing. called Flaming Hot. So yeah, you know, see the movie when it comes out, hopefully after this pandemic. Unbelievable. This must be the first of many times. I'm very excited for this. Honored, my friend. Gracias. We're living in a country that has both deep historic flaws and unlimited, unprecedented potential. So if we want to get a better, brighter, more bountiful future, the question we need to ask ourselves is the same question Pastor Sam's asking. How do we cut away the debris so that we have a clear space to build? Because ultimately, the way we get the best version of our society is through remembering 
to borrow a beautiful phrase that this is a time to build. Anyway, thanks so much for joining us today. If you like what you heard, if you enjoyed this, then please, the best thing you can do is give us that rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And by the way, if you do, and if you review us on iTunes, just let me know on Twitter, on Instagram, let me know on the social so that I can let the whole world know that you are awesome. Okay, that's it for now. This is Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.